we live in a fallen world. And we really need to understand two things. That first of all, we're fallen people, and we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. We come into the world dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, we live by the flesh. Even after we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, we still have the natural bent to sin. So we're still fallen people in that sense. Second is we live in a fallen world. And the Bible even says that the world actually was cursed because of the fall of mankind, and there's going to be a time of redemption, but the whole fallen world is controlled by the evil. The world lies in the wicked one. The wicked one is the devil. We just did a study on Wednesday nights called Angels and Demons, and what we realized is that we have a fallen world system controlled by a fallen angel, that God has allowed Satan to be the god of this age, as he calls it, and he controls the world system, and that's why it's really evil. And so we have to live in all that. And so as we think about coming together on a Sunday morning, like now, we say, oh, this is, we feel good here. We come together, we got donuts, we got friends, we got coffee, we get sit, talk, we worship, we sing, we have a great time. Then we have to leave. And then we leave and we scatter out all over this community and all over this area, and we're going out into a fallen world. And the truth is this, we need protection. We're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, 12 says, We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against wicked forces in heavenly places. So we're in a fallen world, and we have an enemy, and we want to live righteously and godly. As we look at this passage, it literally says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's part of the Lord's Prayer. Most of you quote it. You could quote the Lord's Prayer. You say, Our Father, which are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Everybody knows it. And, and so we're at this one part. This is the last part we're looking at. And it says, it actually basically says, do not lead us into temptation. What does that mean? How does it fit together? So <clears throat> we'll see it as we look through it this morning. There's some, there's some neat things there, and there's some, I think there's some hard things as well. We've looked at detail of the Lord's Prayer, and we've seen Jesus' teaching, and we've seen that there's worship in there, there's petition. There's, let me give you the outline to show you what I mean. If you remember that even at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we, there's worship, our Father which are in heaven, uh, the kingdom come, and all that. Then he has petition, intercession, and confession, where we ask for daily bread, we ask for forgiveness in that sense, we ask for protection, which is what we're going to get today. That's all part of intercession and petition. And then there's thanksgiving and praise at the very end. For the eyes of the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's how it's going to end. And so you can see that all five types are there in the Lord's prayer. In fact, you can look at it this way. There's worship to the Heavenly Father, petition, intercession, daily bread, and confession, seeking forgiveness with the Father and others. This morning, one last section or one last way to look at it is we're going to see petition, intercession, and it's dealing with temptation and evil. And then we're going to see praise and thanksgiving at the very end. So let's look at, and if you've, you've got your handout, we're looking really at verse 13 today. Okay, verse 13. Let me read it. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And there's different passages. In fact, there are some manuscripts that the part that says for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory aren't even in that. Some manuscripts don't have that part. You've got to remember that there are 5,000 Greek manuscripts just of the New Testament. Okay, there's over 15,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Some are Greek, some are Aramaic, some are in Egyptian, some are in different other languages. This is just all over. So we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through it. Let's start with the protection. Okay, and he deals with temptation and protection. Now, you may have not looked, noticed what I'm saying, but look what he says. 
And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this deals with temptation and protection. Notice what he's asking. We're praying to God, don't lead us into what? Temptation. Now, does God lead you to do something wrong? Would God lead you to a situation to make you sin? We already know that God doesn't cause anybody to sin. God doesn't tempt people to sin in any way, shape, or form. So what in the world does it mean when it says, do not lead us into temptation? We already know that the word temptation doesn't necessarily mean to do something wrong. It has an idea in James chapter 1 where he says, God does not tempt anyone to do evil. And James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into various what? Trials. That's exactly the same word. The same word temptation and trial is the same in the Greek. So you could say, and Lord, do not lead us into trials, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, first of all, we already know that God is not going to lead you to do something wrong or to put you in a situation where you're going to do something wrong. This idea here is an idea of testing and trials and the temptation. Now, we might say it this way. We might say, Lord, protect me. Don't let me get into some place where I might sin and fall. In other words, help me. Don't let me, don't let me get pulled to do wrong. Don't let me get to a place where I might mess up. It, it would be that we might say, oh, Lord, uh, we know how weak we are. Please, uh, and I'm prone to sin. Please don't let me get into situations that will cause me to sin. That may be one way to take it. We know he's not saying, uh, don't. Don't tempt me to do wrong, because God would never do that. God doesn't do that. That's what James says in James chapter 1, 13 and 14. He, he says that. So the idea might be, Lord, please protect me. Now, I want you to notice something. He says, and do not lead us into temptation. By the way, that's an imperative. That's basically commanding God. <laughs> you don't command God. Let me just say this. You don't command God. You don't say, God, you do this. It's, it's, it is a command in the Greek, but the idea there is a permissiveness, like, oh, Lord, please, please deliver. Don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from this. It's that idea of deliver is an imperative, but it's the idea of, say, please do this. Please do this. Do not lead me into temptation, but you, please, deliver us from evil. Now, here's something you may not realize, but the word evil there actually is the idea that word deliver means to rescue or to keep safe. That's what he wants to do, right? Do you believe that God will protect you and keep you safe? What do you think? Yeah, he will. And it's okay to say, Lord, don't, don't let me get into situations where I might what? I might mess up. Can we get into situations that we might mess up? Yeah, in fact, if we follow our own flesh, we sure going to get into places where we mess up. So what he's saying is, when you pray, one of, the, one of the requests, one of the intercessions, one of the petitions is, Lord, keep me away from these sort of things. Deliver me. Deliver me from this. And so, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from, and it says what? From evil. But it means more than that. Actually, in the Greek, it's evil one. Who's he talking about? Satan. He's saying, keep me from the evil one. This is protection in a fallen world. Look, Jesus, if you remember in the high priestly prayer in John 17, and we're going to see that possibly later on, but in John 17, he basically says, I pray for them that because they're, they're in the world, but they're not of the world, and so protect them in this world. We live in a fallen world. Now, what Jesus could have done is every time somebody trusted in Christ, he could have taken them home to be with him. Okay, but then who would be left to tell? 
See, so what he's done is he said, you, cut, you trust in me and you're saved, and now I'm leaving you in this fallen world so that you can tell other people about Jesus Christ. But if you're in this fallen world, it is not an easy world. There's temptation, there's trials, there's pools everywhere. There is the evil one who controls it. Let's talk about Satan's plan for a minute. If, you're, if you were in my class last semester, we talked about this a number of times, but Satan's plan is, is very simple. For the unbeliever, his goal is that you never trust in Christ as Savior. For people who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, his goal is they never understand and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's his goal. He doesn't care if they're religious. There are religious people all over this town. There are religious people all over this world. He is fine with it. There are people who go to church every Sunday and think by going to church, doing good, getting baptized, doing all kinds of things, that somehow they've satisfied God. We're actually going to talk about this Sunday morning. In the passage, this, this coming Sunday morning, we're going to talk about this whole idea of people who think doing good somehow gets them to God. There are religious people everywhere. Satan loves it. Some people say, well, wouldn't he want everybody to be like drunkards laying in the gutter? No. No, because sometimes if you're a drunkard laying in the gutter, you get to the bottom of yourself and you say, there's got to be something better. But if you think you already got it, if you think I'm going to church and I'm fine, I don't need anything, I got baptized when I was a baby or I got baptized when I was 12 or I try to keep the Ten Commandments or I try to do this or I've given money away. Those, if you think that's going to please God, Satan is so happy. He's sitting there going, this guy will never find the way because he already thinks he has it. That's Satan's lie. Satan's lie is if you do good, God will love you. The truth is you can't do good and God already loves you. He loves you enough that he sent his son. So the plan for the unbeliever, Satan's plan, is they never trust Christ as Savior. He doesn't care if you're religious. In fact, he'd rather be you religious. The world is full of false religion. Just look at it. Everywhere, false religion. For believers, his plan is that we never serve. We never grow and we never serve because it's already too late. We trusted in Christ. We have eternal life. We're children of God. We're saved. But his goal is that we would never grow, that we'd always get caught, that we would, we would let everything else get in the way, that, that the, 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 this whole world system and the joys and the pleasures and the, the bad, it's just going to pull us away from God. And so his plan is that whatever way he can stop us from growing and serving, that would be fine. And that's why this whole world and its enticements, especially on our flesh, as believers, we still have the natural bent of sin, always trying to pull us away. So when he says, deliver us from the evil one, I want you to notice John seventeen fifteen. I do not ask you, talking to the believers, he said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them, it's supposed to be from, not form, keep them from the evil one. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And that's, that's Jesus praying for the disciples there. And he later on and says, same thing I pray for them. I pray for those who will come to know me because of them. And that's us. Because it's been passed down all these years, people telling other people about Jesus Christ. So, do not lead us into, Lord, don't let us get into something that's going to mess us up. But keep us, deliver us, keep us away from the evil one you may or may not realize that you're in a bad spiritual battle. I think what helped me a lot is when we did that class last semester on angels and demons, and uh, it's, it's amazing to realize how much is there, how much uh, the, the fallen world affects us, how much Satan controls the things, how much uh, there is a spiritual battle we can't see. You all know that in this room right now, 
there are good angels and bad angels in this room right now. You can't see them. They're spirit beings. They want to influence. They're good angels that serve God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, that there are angels set apart to serve those who have salvation. But there are also angelic beings that are evil. We call them demons. And it's a spiritual battle. And so when Jesus was taught his men to pray, he said, first of all, remember the heavenly Father. He's set apart. We want his kingdom to come. Remember that he'll provide for us every day. Remember that we need to forgive others as he's forgiven us. Remember that we do not want to get into places where we'll mess up, but help, help us be delivered from this evil one. You're in, a, you're in a spiritual battle whether you realize it or not. And if you don't realize it and stand strong and put the Word of God in your brain and live according to the Scripture, you're going to fall and you're going to get messed up because he is more subtle than anything you could imagine. He'll always hit you right where you don't want to be hit. I mean, you'll think, well, this is okay, or maybe this one time, or maybe, and he's there. So remember that. Do not listen to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then there's the last part. Let me just look at the clock. We've got plenty of time this morning. Look at this last part. It's thanksgiving and praise. And this is how he ends it. And uh, I... I, I when I look at manuscripts, I think this is probably very accurate. I know some, some Bibles say that it's not in the earlier manuscripts. Some say it's not in the later manuscripts. I, let me just throw something out for you. There are a whole bunch of manuscripts, 5,000 Greek manuscripts. And you may not realize it, but there are they're bunches. And so when, you, when they put the New Testament together, they've got all these manuscripts. And some might read Lord Jesus Christ, and some might read Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing changes, it's just maybe the word. When some, some of the manuscripts are a little bit different. Some manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, were, were called, um, they were written on papyrus, and they lasted longer because they were in the, the hot part of the world, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they lasted longer. So they're older ones. Then there's, there's ones that are not as old, but you have much more of them. They're called majority text. And so you've got two sets basically of manuscripts, some that are older, some that are newer. You have a lot more newer ones than you have older ones. It makes sense because older ones all got destroyed. Sometimes they differ. And so some people say, well, which is more accurate, the older one or the one that's got the most copies? I think they probably both are accurate, and sometimes you have to look and see what. So some manuscripts don't have, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Some do. My, my Bible, which is a New American Standard, puts it in there and puts little blocks around it to let you know that some manuscripts don't have that. Some of you have Bibles that'll have a little star or something, and down at the bottom it'll say something like, earlier manuscripts don't have this, or later manuscripts, you know, and they'll put it that way. Just, just let you know. The Bible is perfect. What we have is true. It's not that we don't have enough of it. We got so many copies, you have to figure out what is the best reading. I want you to understand something, because I did textual criticism when I was in seminary, which is to look at all the text. There is not one thing in any textual criticism that changes the meaning of the Bible. In other words, it may be Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord, or Lord Jesus, or Jesus Lord. I mean, there's nothing that changes anything. So when we say there's a manuscript difference, it doesn't mean somebody goes, well, something got left out. No. Everything is fine. Just want you to know that. So in ours it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. <clears throat> glory forever. Amen.
thanksgiving and praise. So notice the kingdom. Jesus is the king. Uh, a lot of people, because you're in our church, and most of you have been in our church well, from the beginning of this church, but most of, a lot of you have been with me for a long time, for 20 years. And we've always taught what we call the historical, literal, grammatical interpretation of the Bible, which means you take the Bible historically, literally, and grammatically. And what it says, it means. And so when we take the Bible that way, we actually see that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and after that is the church age, and after that is going to be a rapture, First Thessalonians 5, where Jesus, 4 and 5, where Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be a tribulation. We saw it in the book of Daniel. We saw it when we studied First Thessalonians. We saw it when we studied Second Thessalonians. That he's going to come back. There'll be, Jesus will come back as the king of kings and rule for a thousand years. Now, we all take that for granted because we see that in the Bible. But do you know that most denominations do not believe that way at all? They don't take the Bible historically, literally, and grammatically. And so most denominations, people that you come in contact with every day, do not believe that there will be a rapture, a tribulation, a second coming, and a kingdom. They're called what we call amillennialists, which means no kingdom. And most denominations are no kingdom. We are because we see that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that he will rule for a thousand years. It says it seven times in six verses. So we believe the kingdom's going to be a thousand years because he tells us that over and over. They would say that doesn't mean that. It's just, you know, it just doesn't mean that. That's the best way they can do it. So when it says that your kingdom come, thy will be done, when he says yours is the kingdom, his is the kingdom. One of these days, Jesus Christ will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me explain something to you. When God created the heavens and the earth, he made this earth and he put man on that earth. We'd say Adam and Eve. What was their responsibility? Do you remember what it was? Huh? Okay, first of all, keep the garden. But it was to populate the world and have dominion over the world. Who's the king of the world? Adam was the king of the world. Adam was the king. And what happened? Satan came in, fooled Eve, Adam sinned knowingly, and he lost the kingship. Who's the king of the world now? Satan is the king of the world. Satan got, because God allows Satan to be the prince of the power of the air, but one of these days when Jesus comes back, he comes back as the gospel of Matthew tells us, he's coming as the what? The king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he's coming back and his kingdom is forever and he's going to rule the world. And when Jesus Christ comes back, the Bible calls him the last Adam. There's the first Adam who sinned and failed. The last Adam is Jesus Christ who per perfectly lived, never sinned, paid for the penalty of sin, died and rose again, is the eternal son of God, the eternal king. And one of these days he's coming to rule in righteousness Injustice. That's Revelation chapter 20, and then the eternal kingdom goes on in Revelation 21 and 22. That's why it says at the very end, it says, For yours is the kingdom. He is the king. Now, he's not ruling on this earth. He's seated where? At the right hand of the throne of the Father, waiting until everything is ready, and then he will come get us. There'll be the tribulation, and then he will come as the king. So just understand that. And so it says, for yours is the kingdom and the what? And the power. He's almighty God. Listen, I always say it this way. When Jesus came the first time, he was asking to be king, and the nation of Israel rejected him. When he comes the second time, he's not asking anybody. 
He's taking names when he comes the second time, right? He's not asking anybody. He's going to rule as Psalm 2 says. He will rule with a rod of iron as the king of all power and glory and majesty. You remember the Chronicles of Narnia? And at the end, they realized that Aslan was the same as Jesus. And so they said, ooh, Aslan, uh, is he good? He said, oh, he's real good. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. Jesus Christ is the most powerful being that's ever existed. He, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And he is dangerous because he's so powerful. We can't even imagine how powerful God is. I mean, we can't even imagine how powerful Satan is. And Satan's nothing compared to God. He's a created being. So his is the power because he is Almighty God. And when he comes that second time, he's coming in power and majesty and glory, and we can't even comprehend his power. Now, if you read carefully Revelation chapter 20, it says he's coming riding a what? First time he came, he came into Jerusalem riding on a what? Donkey. Second time he's coming, he's coming on a white horse. And guess who's coming with him? We're coming, and we're back there saying, you take care of it all. We'll just be back here cheering, because that's what we're going to do. Because we're not fighting. We're not fighting. He's fighting. His is the kingdom and the power and the what? The glory. The glory. We sing the, 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 the Greek word for glory is doxa. You ever heard of a doxology? A lot of churches says, let's all stand and sing the doxology. What is it? Praise God from whom. That doxology means praise. It means glory. He is the glorious one. As the creator, the redeemer, the king. I didn't put it, but listen, it would take pages if we listed who he is in his glory. And so we want to think about that as we, as we think thanksgiving to the, all, to the glorious one who rules with all power. So when we look at this, like even this, this morning, he's the king. He has all power. He can do anything. To him, all the glory. And that's what, listen, have you ever thought about this? What, what, what do we come for on a Sunday morning? Why are we here? Think about this. We've come to worship and give praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Now, we do two things. There's a first aspect is where we're singing and, and, and we're responding to God and we're worshiping Him as we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we study. So even when we have the Bible and we're going through a passage and we're teaching the passage, we're, we're bringing all glory to Him and worshiping Him because it's His Word and He's given us His truth and we're to know His truth and apply His truth. And that's why he gets all the honor and the glory. So, so when we think about it, the Lord's Prayer gives us the pattern of intercession and petition and worship and thanksgiving and confession. And so maybe this week, spend time in prayer as you follow the pattern Jesus gave to his disciples. So it might be fun just sometime this week, take the Lord's Prayer and just go down it because the first part's the worship part and the second part is asking for his petition and intercession and then the third part is confession and then it comes back to petition again with the whole temptation thing and then the last thing ends up being uh, praise and honor and, and glory to him to, and thanksgiving for who he is and what he's done. So let me give you the applications real quick and then we can go to the grow groups. But the first one is let's follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Think about it. Now, you can pray, and the whole prayer could be nothing but petition. It could be. You may come to him and say, oh, Lord, here, I, got, I got a number of things I'd like to ask you for. That's okay. You could come to him and say, Lord, I got like 10 people I'd like to make requests for. That's intercession. 
you could come to him and all you say is, Lord, you, you, are, you are the greatest. I fall down before you. I worship you. You're my creator, my redeemer. That's worship. You could come to him and all you do is say, I, I, I'm, come, I'm here to turn myself in. I'd like to talk about all the things I've done wrong. And then you could just end it by saying, Lord, thank you for this and thank you for this and thank you for this and thank you for this. So you could do all of them that way or you could do all five at one time. You can do whatever you want to do. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. So let's follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Second, may we praise, worship, and be thankful to our great God and Savior. That's what we do. Praise Him, worship Him, be thankful. That's what we see in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we see throughout the Scripture. The third one is let's bring our petitions and our intercessions to God because daily He provides our needs and protects us from the evil one. That's the two petitions in here. And then last but not least, we confess our sins, seeking forgiveness as we forgive others. Now, in this passage, he actually says, and we talked about it, it was pretty hard stuff, but it was this. As you, as you sin and you need forgiveness, you need to make sure that you've forgiven anybody else. Because he actually says, after the Lord's prayer is over, he says, if you do not forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father won't. For if you forgive others uh, of, their, of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, the heavenly Father will not forgive yours. He's basically saying, if you're out of fellowship with somebody else, you're going to be out of fellowship with God. So solve those issues. <clears throat> this morning's passage in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew, we're be, we now have hit the very difficult section of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to deal with issues like anger and murder and adultery and lust and divorce and vows and oaths and retaliation and love. He's going to deal with all those issues in the next five or six weeks. And if possible, I'd like to skip on to chapter 6. But you can't. Chapter 6 is a lot easier. Chapter 5 is really hard. So we're going to start this morning. And it ties back in to forgiving people and dealing with issues. So a lot of good stuff.